I'm David McGee, and this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. When I'm traveling different parts of the country and speaking to students and often parents, there is one persistent topic that comes up over and over again, peppered by so many questions, and it's about uh, marijuana and how it is used and what is its impact and everything that parents and students don't understand about it. So what we've decided to do on this podcast is uh, double up on the content a little bit and and continue the conversation about the effect of THC on um, young minds and, and, and even older minds, not just young minds, and everything that we know and some of what we don't know. Alexis Lee, always good to see you on the podcast. Hello. So, you know, young people are more prone to marijuana use than older adults. We, we, we're seeing increasingly that uh, there's probably 20% of the young population um, that, that uses marijuana, whereas there are fewer adults in America, though, though I think the number is increasing. But that doesn't, you know, 20% is, sometimes it can feel like we live in this marijuana nation at a mm-hmm. moment where there's this movement going on, but that 20% is 20% of young people and less than adults. That certainly doesn't mean everybody is doing it. Mm-mm, but it can feel like everyone is doing it and everyone around you is doing it. And I think the best correlation to draw to this is when I arrived on the Ole Miss campus, I thought everyone was in Greek life. It just felt like everyone mm-hmm. was in Greek life. But we have less than half percent that mm-hmm. are in Greek life. And so it just kind of it feels like it, and it's a hot topic right now. So it, it can definitely feel like you're a minority if you're not doing it. And a lot of times when I'm talking to young males in particular, it does feel like it more than 20% are using <laughs> it, maybe more than like 50%. Um, but we'll dig into that. We'll dig into that. We've got a great guest today to uh, help us go there. We do. Dr. Nicole Ashpole, an associate professor of pharmacology, trained in neuroscience, neuroscience, and molecular and cellular biology. Um, and she has such great insight. She works with a lot of different um, partnerships on campus. And so I know there's going to be some good conversations. Okay, my first conversation is, can you please tell me what geroscience is? I do not know. Yes, so geroscience is the study of aging. So you think about geriatric medicine, well, we needed to have a, a scientific, an ology or a science. And so we went with geroscience okay. in the field. All right. Well, <laughs> see, I learned something already. When uh, Nicole, when we talk about um, you know young people in particular and um, – marijuana use. You know, what I tell young people when I'm in schools, I say, you think I'm I'm anti-marijuana probably out of the gate, but let me just say I, I'm not, meaning I don't have any stance any more than I do about uh, alcohol or honey buns. And, you, you know, it, it's not my place to say you shouldn't do this. They mm-hmm. have to figure that out for themselves. Mm-hmm. So what I've tried to do is, you know, what we've tried to do is create a forum where we can have a conversation about uh the 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 substance and what it is so they can make their own decisions 
it, when we talk about marijuana in in uh, THC, for example, I mean the studies are clear. It, it, it's like a lot of drugs in the country. It's not all bad. I mean there mm-hmm. there could be some. I think there are some proven scientific benefits, for example. Yeah, there are some scientific benefits. We do have some FDA approved medicines that have. Um, the constituents of cannabis in it. So whether that's like CBD is in epidiolics, which is used to treat childhood forms of seizures and epilepsy. And then there's also like some THC derived medicines that can be used to help with nausea and vomiting, with chemotherapy and with AIDS. And so we know that, you know, even the FDA has found some warrant Mm. in some cannabis based medicines. Um, And then with all of the states trying to legalize medical marijuana, just like we did here in Mississippi recently, um, you know, we've seen benefits against things like pain um, and some forms of anxiety, um, PTSD type effects. There's also risks, like you said, right? And so we have to just go with what the science tells us. And the science tells us that there are some things that might work well on, and there are some things Mm. that are going to have clear risks. So it's interesting. I think the story has been told culturally. Um, When when I talk to young people, for example, they they anecdotally share that they believe it it reduces or eliminates anxiety kind of carte blanche across the table. And Mm. I usually say, you know, I think the research shows that for some people, and right. for some circumstances, and in certain amounts, it right. can reduce, right? Right, for sure. Higher amounts of THC actually can induce anxiety. Um, and so you see that, you know, some some people will do what they call dabbing, mm. um, which is going to take kind of like this oil or this butter and try to inhale that. That's been shown to definitely have increased levels of anxiety. Um, there are some people who just respond differently. I, I know that I have responded very poorly mm-hmm. with high anxiety when I um, mm-hmm. have consumed cannabis in the past, mm-hmm. um, but others will use it to try to help reduce that anxiety. And mm-hmm. so I don't know, you know, we have our own endogenous cannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid system that is that we know regulates emotion and pain. And so that's probably contributes to why some people might respond one way or the other, depending on what your own like normal balance is within your system. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. We 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 have tried culturally to apply kind of a one size fits all. Right. Here is this drug and and people, you know, growing up kind of get this same message and it's like, you know, the truth is brains are different, as you just noted, for everybody. You know, little points of difference. There are studies around cannabis that show males and females respond differently even Mm -hmm. to it. So we know that it's clearly not one size fits all. So when a parent says to me, like, I don't like it that my child is using marijuana, I don't like it at all. But, you know, I mean, hey, they're anxious if it reduces their anxiety. And I'll often say, but I'm not sure you know that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sure you know that you're it, it, that it ju- does just that. What do we know that happens with uh, marijuana in the brain? Like what what's going on in that mm-hmm. relationship? Well, we know that when we're taking something that has THC in it. THC is acting on one of our receptors called the CB1 receptor, and that is what gives you that high, that that psychoactive response. And so when CB1 is activated, you see 
like reduction of movement, you start kind of slowing down. That's typically where you start to see the relaxation. You can get a drop in your body temperature. And that's just because where the receptors are for CB1 and what it's regulating is this normal, natural response. And so we can see that agonists will do that. Um, but when people are taking cannabis, right, when they're smoking pot or, you know, consuming an edible, they're not typically just getting THC. They're getting THC and all of the other compounds that are similar to it within the plant as well. So we have to keep in mind that the plant doesn't just produce THC or CBD. There's over 130 cannabinoids mm. that are found within the plant. Plus, then you have all the things that give it its flavor and its smell, the terpenes and the flavonoids. And we know that some of those are active too. So um, there's a, a reason why people might respond differently to one strain or type of, of cannabis mm -hmm. than another. Yeah, right. So, you know, if we think about in science, we tried to really target and try to understand what is CB1 doing? What is CB2, the other cannabinoid receptor, doing? But what we've learned is that you're going to be taking in, a lot of people are taking in these dried leaves that have all sorts of compounds in them, and they're not just hitting one receptor or the other. They can hit some of the other components of our cannabinoid system. They might hit things totally unrelated to the cannabinoid system. And so putting all of those constituents together into our body might have a different effect than just taking THC. If you take, if you do e like edibles, oils, is that different also when it hits your system? Yeah. The way that you isolate out the material from the plant um, will give you different chemical compounds. So if you're going to boil it in water, so like in a bong, you're going to get out different chemicals that could go out into the water and could like respond to that heat mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. water to come out compared to if you're putting it in butter in the pan, right? Mm -hmm. And you're trying to make an edible, we get out different compounds. And that's just because the chemicals themselves, some of them are really oily. And so they come out in oil-like substances and some of them aren't. But when you put in heat and you kind of cause a conversion with water present, you're going to get other compounds out. So people can respond differently because you're getting different chemicals out, whether you're boiling it, um, smoking it, or putting it in, in water. Mm. And, you know, the the another common myth, I think, about uh, marijuana uh, throughout the country, particularly in young people, is that they don't consider it um, Addictive, mm -hmm. uh, but the CDC has a study out in recent years that suggests that some three out of ten people who are using cannabis on a regular basis likely suffer from marijuana use disorder. Right. And you know how what is the role of say academics and what is the role of studies as this becomes more pervasive? I have a common line. People that listen to this podcast have certainly heard me say it before. I tell young people all the time, I'm like, look, I mean, just because alcohol is legal doesn't mean that if you were drinking a fifth of vodka every day that you mm -hmm. would be functional and that would be a good quality of life, you right. know? And so uh, somehow in this march to mainstream, we, we've got to also balance it out with education. So what, what, how do you see the role of uh, in, in, say, academics and in the government like the NIH and different studies? Like how, how, where, where do we go from here to as this becomes increasingly mainstream to, to really ramp up the education and the conversation? Right. I think it's amazing that we've been consuming this plant for thousands of years now. 
and we still don't know a lot about it. Like we still, we might know a lot about the plant, but we still don't know about the long-term effects, mm -hmm. um, the risks at different stages of our lives, the benefits at different stages of our lives. And, and there's some politics behind that, right? There are many other things that kind of influenced maybe that lack of knowledge that we have. But right now, when it's becoming mainstream, we need to have more and more studies that are done to try to understand what the short-term and long-term effects are going to be. And when we know that people are trying to find different strains that they think this strain is going to be best because I have cancer pain or this strain is going to be best over here, like we don't have really clear science behind really any of that. Now, I, I know that there's been a push from the Biden administration. They released a statement that um, they're going to open up research access because one of the things that's been hard is it's been hard to access cannabis for mm -hmm. research. Um, we're very lucky here at the University of Mississippi. And we've been one of the only ones back in the day. I mean, yeah. our um, marijuana studies here sanctioned by the government were one of the rare few ones for a long time, right? Right. Yes, yeah, so we've been studying for over 50 years. Our campus um, has been the only, only federally approved grow site for cannabis mm -hmm. um, for over 50 years now. Wow. They're opening that up so that other places yes. might be able to grow, but we're still the main producer right now for any medical cannabis, anything that's happening in research that's sanctioned by the mm -hmm. DEA and that's supported by the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Wow. So, yeah. But I think that um, now that... We can see this drive in public demand. We need to make sure that we're getting that research that is matching and, you know, we're demanding more research to try to understand the, the effects of all of these constituents mm -hmm. in humans. Well, it's because it, it's, it's, it's vitally important in a lot of ways because, as you noted earlier, there is potential long-term health implications mm -hmm. uh, that we may, may not know. Uh, there's certainly likely some, uh, and it's it's not it's not the norm that large if large substance large amounts of substances are consumed at a young age and over a long period of time. There's usually some impact, you would think, mm -hmm. uh, but then also the difference in this and say alcohol, for example. Um, you know, students will tell me, well, hey, and it, I think the workplace is no different. They'll say. You know, I can get away mm -hmm. um, with with coming to school high, um, whereas if I walked in there and they smelled alcohol in my breath, I'd be out of there in one minute. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it stays in your system long. So as it becomes this mainstream movement, again, I'm not passing judgment on it. What I tell everybody is, look, if that's the best way forward, I'm all for it. I mean, it, it, I don't spend any time on legal, not legal. I just mm -hmm. am concerned about People, the, humans having the education and the facts. I mean, that's right. what we know, right? That can drive us forward. But well, I think like the way you've said that with with you know you you started out by saying there were twenty to twenty five percent of mm -hmm. of um, young adults or teenagers that are consuming cannabis, right? And we we know it's about like five to six percent that consume daily, mm -hmm. right? Based on the yep. FDA study. Mm -hmm. But when you look at cannabis use disorder. One of the clear things that's come out or the marijuana use disorder is that earlier in life, it, it appears to be more prevalent in individuals who are adolescents who are consuming mm -hmm. more frequently. And so, you know, a use disorder, whether it's alcohol use disorder or cannabis use mm -hmm. disorder, those are defined, you know, not just by having that addictive potential, but they're defined by us having cravings or feeling like, you know, I can't get out of bed. I can't go to school mm -hmm. if I don't mm -hmm. smoke pot before I go. Um, 
but also that you're willing to make riskier decisions to try to get to that. And so even if you think, well, I don't need cannabis, like I'm not addicted to it like my friend who's addicted to alcohol, if you're showing some of those signs and symptoms that are just, you know, you think you need this to relax or you just really would like to have it right then or you're willing to go and break the law to do something, mm-hmm. you're showing those signs. But the adolescents are the ones that we're seeing uh, increased risk of cannabis use disorder if they're using earlier in life. Yeah, I'm increasingly seeing, you know, um, that and I think some of the information is not clear, but I increasingly see young men suffering more. I'm not to say that and that's anecdotal, mm-hmm. uh, but 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 I think that there are plenty of studies that say men in general are more uh, likely to suffer from, you know, um, misuse of illicit drugs, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not necessarily off base what I see anecdotally, but, but they say to me over again, over and over again, young men do, they will say, um, wow, I, I, I thought this wasn't addictive. I think because they, they think addiction is just, as you said, I'm having these shakes. Mm-hmm. I, I, like they, I'm not sure that they are piecing together this psychological dependence and are pu- putting themselves at risk at it, but they will say like, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I'm anxious. So I don't feel comfortable going to school without it. That's mm-hmm. what they will say. Mm-hmm. Not, not really being able to make that association that on a habitual level, they are altering, you know, how they feel. Right. Yeah, for sure. Alexis, uh, what, uh, you know, when, when, when you grew up as a young person, was marijuana like prevalent? I mean, you know, most of us have, have marijuana stories, but I'm not sure everybody does. And I'm one of those that does not. I, I, we joked and um, I would joke with someone over the weekend and I was like, I don't think I knew how to spell marijuana before getting wow. into this field, really. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something I was around a lot. Um, when I came to college, it was a little more prevalent, but I still didn't really understand or have the education um, behind it, what it was, what it did to your brain. Um, honestly, I'll be honest, in college, I was like, where do you even get it? Like, mm-hmm. I kind of was one of those that was just like, and I felt very left out in a way of like, Mm. I just didn't know, but I also kind of was kind of scared of it. So it was like a, it was a healthy balance of, I don't know a lot about it. I don't really know if I want to know a lot about it. Um, But I had friends around me that were doing it and I just really was kind of stayed away from it. My wife tells the same story that when she was in college, you know, she wasn't made a part of it, but she almost felt strangely left out not yeah. that she you, you know what i mean so it was interesting but for me who who has battled substance use disorder like you know it just doesn't marijuana didn't take to me the same way that it did to my two sons who when i read in my late son's williams williams journal about starting using marijuana you know early in high school um, he would argue back to me in debate that it wasn't addictive, but by the time he got into treatment, he wrote in his journals about being completely addicted. And mm-hmm. my other son, you know, experienced the same thing. Where in my same family, where substance use disorder was prevalent, you know, I, for me, alcohol would have been something that hit my brain, and my brain said, "Oh, go back to that." Where. Uh, frankly, marijuana, my brain said, uh, you, you could live without that. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes you feel a little creepy, maybe avoid that. So I think that um, 
it it is such a a a learning process that what you said how it it's just not one size fits all but that is the message that's pervasive mm-hmm. out there i think yeah i agree i think that that is you know especially as it's been growing in, in popularity and as you're starting to see more and more CBD products and you're starting to see more Delta 8 coming around, the people think that, you know, everyone's going to respond the same and that it's all um, going to have either a really good effect or a really bad effect. And I think that's been really polarizing um, and it's limited our, our ability to, you know, limited that push for mm-hmm. research. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hoping that that'll change more over time. I guess I'm, I was more like, um, like Alexis uh-huh. during, uh-huh. <laughs> during high school. I didn't really know the difference between marijuana or meth. Like uh-huh. I knew they were both bad. Yeah. And that Stay they away from about them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so it was a learning process yeah. for me and I was pretty naive in college. Um, when I bought a special brownie that I thought was just on sale, right? Mm-hmm. Like I just mm-hmm. didn't mm-hmm. really put yeah. it together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, Seriously, and how yeah, did no, that go? So it's actually even worse than than you'd think because I split it with my professor. Stop it! I was, so I was um, doing a study abroad. In what university was <laughs> yeah. this? No, I'm teasing. Yeah, I was doing a study abroad and with biology, and um, I got a brownie at that we were waiting for our airplane or something, a form of transportation. And there was a cart. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to get this brownie. And it said special, right? Especial. And I was like, oh, perfect. But it was pretty big. And I I was like, oh, it's kind of of weird flavor. And it kind of smells weird. And I kept eating it. And then I offered some to my professor. And he's the one who told me. Oh, then he's (laughs) like, by the way, that specialty wasn't like built-in whipped cream. Yeah. Yeah. No. He immediately, his eyes went big. And he was like, where did you get this? What is this? Wow. Okay. I yeah. think, and I mean, we've talked about it a lot in this podcast, like education. There's a huge gap in education and all well-being space, but I think especially in this space. And it's interesting of, like, where do you educate kids? Like, how do you have this conversation? Because I don't think schools really are necessarily are like, yes, let's talk about I, it. Actually, mm-hmm. I, I will I will interrupt yes. you on yeah. that, Alexis, and say, because you just hit on something. Yeah. I'm going to give you a real-life experience. I was in a state. Uh, recently speaking at a school where marijuana, not medical marijuana, but marijuana has just become fully legal. Okay. And again, th- I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying that like schools, it ju- I think the workplace is the same way. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, it's happening fast. And so they're figuring out what are we going to do? So I'm at this school and it's just become legal. Now it's legal uh, 21 and up. And not not for sixteen year olds, mm-hmm. but but edibles are suddenly flourishing in the community. They're everywhere, right? Yeah. And so, some student came to school with a lot of edibles, and they're passing around, and they're noticing it's kind of like you with that brownie mm-hmm. on the plane, and your yep. professor, and whatever is happening. We won't go there, but you know, it's <laughs> having an impact, right? Yep. It's yep. having an impact, and so this was happening in the school, and the school was kind of caught off guard mm-hmm. because they have seen the legislation pass and they knew that it was about to happen but what they don't know and i think the workplace is the very same thing is how okay when edibles for example they're not smoking it they're not but they are bringing it in and suddenly they could be under the influence in our school or in the workplace and mm-hmm. what are we to do mm-hmm. i think that education, you know, if you go on to the NIH's web pages, they have a lot of resources on educating um, about 
a lot of potential drugs of abuse, but they mm -hmm. have some really good marijuana research pages okay. that um, even have printouts that people can mm. take and, and use in schools. I think that the NIH has realized that there is like this education gap. I thought it was particularly interesting, like, you know, Mississippi just passed medical cannabis, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's active now. And so I was on our Mississippi State Health Department's webpage. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's the links to the cannabis, like to sign up and how you get your card. But there wasn't any links to anything on education mm. of marijuana and cannabis. And I thought, well, even here we have yes. a gap. You know, well, this right. is a the, state. This the is... law changes, but then catching up. Yeah. So you bring up a great points in that, okay? And you've kind of got my wheels turning because that's one of the things that we try to achieve with this podcast. So, so, so let's take your your example of the NIH website that has very good marijuana education information. Mm -hmm. Now that gets me excited because this research is being done, and the government entity is doing its job, and it's out there. What 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 our challenge is, in and that's kind of what the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing functions as, is, is trying to figure out how do we get that information and make it more accessible. Because mm -hmm. let's be honest, you know, I mean, well, you you don't count Alexis because you work within the William McGee Institute, but but I'm betting even so, you haven't probably spent your life dialing up the NIH website, nih.gov. You know, no, yeah. So so how do we take that? information and parlay it into meeting the audience and accessibility. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think, Dr. Ashpole, you, you, you have really just put your finger on something that, that I think that some of the work you do and some of the work we do, and that's why you're here. But I think the real magic of this is how do we take it much deeper beyond? Because it, information is only as useful as it is fully accessible, mm -hmm. you know? Hi, I'm David McGee. Now, more than ever before, parents need better information about the challenges facing their children, what sorts of issues to expect and when, and the warning signs to look for. From anxiety and depression to addiction, eating disorder and loneliness, students and their families are facing a mental health and substance misuse epidemic that requires new guidance. My new book, Things Have Changed, What Every Parent and Educator Should Know About the Student Mental Health in Substance Misuse Crisis offers a clear roadmap for helping students find the joy they want and deserve. Head over to themayolab.com to sign up for our newsletter and find a link to pre-order my new book. And everyone who signs up for our newsletter and pre-orders a copy of Things Has Changed will receive a digital copy of my expanded student toolbox. Visit themayolab.com today. You are listening to the Mayo Lab Podcast with David McGee. Now, back to the episode. I think it's unfortunate, like, there needs to be a way to improve the Google algorithm. Because if you look yeah. it up and you yes. just type in cannabis, right, you're going to get all the paid sponsor labs yeah. and all of the cannabis companies and all of, you know, and you have to kind of sit there and look through. So if you just Google cannabis NIH, you're more likely to get that. Yes. But the NIH actually has like really good web pages for a lot of diseases and a lot of mm -hmm. like just general health information. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're right. Most people aren't looking at NIH.gov. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're not. They're not. Now, I, I actually do. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's funny because so in August, I have this uh, book coming out, which is more a guidebook. It's not like my memoir, but it's called Things Have Changed, What Every Parent and Educator Should Know About the Student Mental Health and Substance Misuse Crisis. And what's interesting is, is uh, Alexis was talking to me one day and she said, this is fascinating. Like, so you're, you're not a researcher per se. I mean, maybe I say a, a lay version of one, mm-hmm. but there I've got research mm-hmm. throughout the book and that my, what my response was because I say like there's a I, I find when I, because I'm a journalist so I can get 17 pages in a Google search and start to find stuff there is a lot of good information out there there really is but but it is but almost I but I walk into a school and and have a parent meeting and I tell them that marijuana use disorder is a thing and these are people the majority of which had college degrees and I promise you I'll maybe get one out of 20 who even believe me not only do they go oh I've learned something they actually don't even really believe me mm-hmm. I mean obviously you're doing the hard work of going out into the schools and and making new web pages is kind of like adding to this void of right mm-hmm. like we could make another web page to try to make it more apparent but there are web pages <laughs> right, right. and it's like how do you mm-hmm. get them up there so like what kind like how would you foresee trying to get that info out more mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a great question, and that's why I love this forum. This is this is a lab. That's <laughs> this is why this podcast lives within the uh, Thomas Hayes Mayo Lab, you know, within the William McGee Institute, because th- it is a lab, and that's a lot of what this conversation is. Um, frankly, I think it is it is it is taking that research information, which frankly I have read it, and I, and it does speak pretty clear language. Mm-hmm. It, it, a lot of it is. Who it's coming from and 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 where it lives, as you noted, because there's not a lot of people going to those websites. I think it is continually um, getting it, um, re- really studying. Okay, I have my answer. I'll, I'll phrase it for you. We've done a good job in this country. I think better than people realize in research around mental health and substance misuse. Um, We also are pretty good in this country at storytelling, I think. I think where we've done a poor job is melding the research between storytelling Mm -hmm. and and the actual science of what's happening with the brain. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we hear or we can inspire others to become excellent uh, researchers and storytellers in that gap, that we really need to study not just what's happening – uh, but how do we make sure that we are that information is being received, you know, and and we need to study the young minds about how what substance do to them, substances do to them in misuse. And we need to study young minds as in how they best get that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I do imagine that when you go and look up research, it's very different than when Alexis looks yes. up research mm-hmm. and like the venue that um, you know, people your age mm-hmm. might be more mm-hmm. interested in watching, right? Yeah, <laughs> or right. taking right. part in, right? Yeah. And it's it's hitting those my age, and then it's hitting the teens, and mm-hmm. hitting all the students in between of how we have these conversations and the parents, because let's and the educators, because they're spent they spend more time with those students than or the educators spend more time with those students than the parents sometimes. Yeah. Well, I've actually I've had two young people tell me, and they were from different areas. They weren't like you know University of Mississippi students. One of them was. One of them was from somewhere else. And but I've had two students recently say, "Oh, my new source is TikTok." 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, I'm talking sure. in the oh, last yeah. week or their new, I was like, your news source is TikTok. A, that thing's probably going to be banned soon. <laughs> uh, so, so you need to find another one. And B, um, B, your news source is TikTok, really? Um, but they're dead serious. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. they mean that. And so, yeah, they're not Googling the NIH site. Right. And, and, and look, a lot of what I find on there, again, we agree because that's why I got so excited about writing this guidebook because I thought, well, that's what I thought my job was because, um, you know, it, it, it was there was so much information that I would just see that was out there. And I thought, gosh, we have done an incredible job in this country of research around the mind and mm-hmm. substances. And gosh, we have done an absolute terrible job. Why is why is a doctor I know telling telling clients and patients that that marijuana is not addictive and why? Do parents not know that it's 400% stronger today? And why do they think that everything they're vaping is nicotine? And I'm like, their children are vaping is nicotine. And I'm like, hello, I don't think so. You might want to ask them. I think, well, I think even in the pandemic, we realized that scientists, we created our own language, right? The scientific language. If people go and pull our scientific papers any normal person is going to have a hard time trying to get through even the first three sentences, Mm. right? And so we've done a terrible job of communicating ourselves because we have built this language that is just not digestible. Um, And then, and fortunately with cannabis, we've had these, you know, this divide or these restrictions in the field where this lack of information, you know, has kind of gone into this void of not being able to research it very clearly. So now we have to not only catch up on the research, especially that clinical side of, you know, putting these things in human patients and watching how they respond, but we also need to catch up on scientists communicating effectively with the general public in a way that, you know, that the general public will believe and understand Right. Yes. And part of what we have to do as a general public is trust Mm -hmm. and and engage because we talk about stigma. I mean, sometimes scientists face their own stigma when you have a movement going on. Like, you know, one scientist told me once, like, I'm a little afraid to, like, say negative things about marijuana. They're going to come on my Twitter account and, you know, throw bricks at me. And he said, it's not that I'm even opposed to it. I say, and I always say, sure. It's like, it's like I use the honey bun. Like I actually like a honey bun. I grew up with them, but that doesn't mean I should eat 15 a day. And and nobody's shy about telling me that there are health issues with it. We don't want to ban honey buns. I mean, they're all over markets today and good for them. Mm -hmm. But, but I mean, I think we've been not shy about saying, Overconsumption of processed foods. Over, I mean, you know that information's out there. I think widely the general public knows this, and and that's okay. So I think we just have to take the same tactic with um, marijuana as we have in other things, as we've tried to assess obesity in so many other areas. You know, mm-hmm. I do think scientists tend to. Um, either hedge their bets because they know that the science hasn't tested all the variables and Mm. we understand that like not everyone is going to respond the same. So maybe we haven't been as concrete in our responses um, to some of those questions. But at at the same time, like I I think sometimes we just don't really know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we're scared to speak something into the truth when it might not be the Mm -hmm. truth. 
So one area, speaking of not knowing, is not in this in this you know uh, marijuana world. There's also these products that are unregulated that yeah. show up in gas stations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is a bigger issue. My my, my son William, uh, my late son William, actually was the first one who taught me about this, and I was like, "You got that at a gas station? Mm-hmm. You, 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 we're, we're, the government's working overtime to make sure that beer over here has its exact alcohol content mm-hmm. and the great and it's." great because if somebody gets that we know what they're getting we don't know though in a lot of these products that are on shelves there are a lot of products out there that are not regulated because they fall in this void of not being food and then not a drug and so they're not Mm. fda regulated or approved right and so they have to be marketed in a particular way so that they don't say you use this to treat X because that's considered um, mm-hmm. mislabeling from the FDA side of a, of a product. But you go to gas stations, you're right, you're going to see all of these little packets of things for sale. <laughs> and we don't know fully what's in them. Um, one of the studies last year, if you even just look at CBD products, right, there's CBD products everywhere. There's CBD stores mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and CBD is legal, right? Hemp is legal. Um, you just have to make sure the product contains no less than point, no more than 0.3% mm. THC. Um, and so if you take these products from the stores and you test them, the FDA did a study that came out last year that showed only, I think it was 45%, um, had what was listed for the amount Mm. of CBD was accurate. Wow. There were many that had less and then there were lots that had more, right? And so, um have more than just CBD, right? They, so they had about 50% tested positive for THC above the level wow. of what you'd expect. And so that can be dangerous when people are like taking yeah. what they think is a CBD product right. and then they're testing positive for yeah. THC. Yeah. If, if you are having a psychoactive response to a CBD product, you're That's not... That's <laughs> probably what's going on. Yeah, I read these online forums on Reddit or yes. see things on TikTok and I'm just like... Mm. I've seen that too. <laughs> I don't it's think the special brownie, right? Yeah, but it's amazing to see what is regulated and what isn't because mm-hmm. even even all of those vitamins and supplements mm-hmm. you can get at, at the uh, pharmacy or in the grocery store, you know, they they fall under the special category of, of not being medicine and not being food and their regulation is just very different. Mm-hmm. And so we just have to be really careful. Um, one of the rising products that people talk about is Delta 8. Yes. If you don't know it, your kids know it. <laughs> they absolutely <laughs> do. Yeah. Even if they're not using it, they've heard of it. Yeah. And so that is – it's really similar to Delta 9 THC, which we would just normally call THC. It's just like one small chemical different. Um, and it's taken usually from hemp. So people think, well, hemp is legal. So therefore, mm-hmm. this product taken from it must be legal. Um, Delta 8 technically right now still falls under being not regulated, but it is showing clear signs of psychoactivity. And so many states have been kind of battling, what are they going to do about this? And the fact is that the gas stations, it's filled with it. And it's one of any age can walk in and buy. And it's one of those ones you're finding a lot in vapes now is Delta 8. Yes. Yeah. That, and that's what I tell parents. That's not always nicotine. They'll say, Oh, my child is vaping. And I'll say, okay, I get it. But you also do know that that's not, always nicotine that they're vaping. In fact, I can find very few teens. They may start with nicotine, but they often move to that because it's available to the gas station. They can get it, and that's typically where they're vaping. Uh, when we talk about young minds, um, what, what, what does – 
The studies seem very clear that that repeated cannabis use, so cannabis misuse um, uh, among young people, that their brain is at risk. Mm-hmm. And and in what what happens with? Do we understand what happens? Is it delaying development? Development? Is it you know? Are there other? Is it leading to other issues? What what is the risk for a young person in habitual cannabis use? Right. I think there's kind of two questions you asked there, um, and the first is what do we know about what it actually leads to? Um, so if we know that during pregnancy, that use and exposure when you're you know, first developing, that's going to lead to an increased risk of anxiety, attention disorders. Um, the, the biggest risk that they see right away is low birth weight. Mm-hmm. But as that child develops, they see increased risk of a lot of these behavioral problems that kind of pop up in their adolescent or their younger years. Um, so that one has been pretty well defined, and you can, and you can see that uh, pretty clearly. The adolescents that are consuming... Um, it really gets to kind of a chicken and the egg, or maybe we just don't know enough about it still, about the those who are taking it long-term use um, and, and whether that is contributing to the onset of a psychiatric illness or whether that is mm. maybe they're using it to try to self-medicate a psychiatric mm-hmm. illness that it hasn't quite popped out yet. And I think that's pretty similar to what you see if you talk about schizophrenia and smoking, mm-hmm. right? There's this like really strong correlation between people who have schizophrenia or live with schizophrenia and how much they smoke. And and they've seen that there some people have been using that to try to help self-medicate and yes. reduce some of the symptoms, but also smoking it increases some of the other symptoms right so it's both sides and i think that maybe that's what we're going to see a bit more with cannabis because the ones that it's been tied to you know which is schizophrenia Mm -hmm. um and higher levels of anxiety um you know, if people are taking cannabis to try to reduce their anxiety already, right? right? And then we start, right. we can't make this false assumption that like mm-hmm. it led mm-hmm. to it. If that's what they were taking it for, maybe they couldn't articulate it when mm-hmm. they were younger. And so I think that science still has to kind of show us that those longitudinal studies are mm-hmm. needed to really see. Because there have been multiple reports. Some come out and say that, you know, it's negative. It leads to schizophrenia. It leads to all sorts of anxiety disorders. And then the next report comes out and says they yes. don't see it. Right. And so, you know. Yeah. Yes. Whether they're just like smaller studies that have been mm-hmm. done, and once you get them all together, we'll see a clear path. Um, and, and also, the, I go back to what you said earlier that different personalities are impacted different mm-hmm. way. Like I've right. seen studies where, for you know, we talk about anxiety, but for some personalities, depending on what strain they're using, they may have um they may it may greatly increase anxiety. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the issues we have here is that it impacts differently. And and even though alcohol, I think, is certainly more consistent in how it acts, people impacts people as I, I think we all know people that are impacted differently mm-hmm. that maybe seem to metabolize it more quickly and something happens or or they get to a b- depressed state while somebody is over here sure they're the funniest person ever you know mm-hmm. and so I think I think you know cannabis is the same where we don't understand that fully and I think science continuing in to play that role and help us understand it but I think in young people in particularly which will ultimately work its way into the workforce and into families I think that helping them just what I find when I get in schools and I give them information about marijuana and other things but marijuana in particular they're pretty hungry for it mm-hmm. because they've not heard it so I think that as we 
you know, can, it can continue to deliver it in what I'll call non-judgmental format. You know, mm-hmm. this is non-judgmental, not just against those that might use it, but but non-judgmental against the the product itself. Which sounds because when if they think you're coming from that stance, there there sometimes is often this like, oh, you're that person, and they'll cut you off. Mm-hmm. We just have to get down to the fact of we care about your mind, mm-hmm. we care about your well-being, and this is. Not the studies are very clear that young people that are habitually using marijuana are facing a lot of risks and they're doing damage to their to their you know well being, and I think that's the message we have to continue to get there. But it has to come with with open arms and very information fact based. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you know earlier you talked on the fact that that you see maybe men. Mm-hmm. Or males have more likely mm-hmm. of of these use disorders mm-hmm. that manifest. And I think one of the things that we've seen with psychiatric medicine is that um, men have what we might refer to as externalizing disorders in in that if they're experiencing anxiety or if they're experiencing, you know, or living with ADHD, that they're more likely to do things like yes. have have um, go to substances, mm-hmm. whereas women more often will experience and manifest these with anxiety, mm-hmm. um, eating disorders, mm-hmm. other internalizing type yep. of disorders. And so I think you know if we keep that in mind as well mm-hmm. in our approach of um, if you're concerned about your adolescent, mm-hmm. you know having a substance use disorder, going to cannabis, marijuana vaping, you know, mm-hmm. with maybe Delta 8 or something else, then you might need to address, like, why were they doing this? Right. Mm-hmm. Is there something else that we can do? Um, are they doing this because they were trying to relax and have fun at a party every once in a right. while? Or is this because they need this because they they need to talk to a therapist, they need to see a doctor, and, and maybe talk about mental health on a bigger picture? That is the point of the day, because frankly... Almost not a single young person I've ever talked to tells me that they're using marijuana to have fun at a party. They might use it to reduce their anxiety to get into a party. Mm -hmm. Uh, But more often than not, those that I talk to who are engaged in uh, daily use, it's more often alone at home to get to school, using it to get through school, to get through homework, to get the, the to get to sleep at night. That's what I hear, and that is that that really leads us to understand like why are they using that to change how they feel, and where can therapy or how, counseling get ahead of that and really help them process and understand why are they doing that right. Uh, that's such great information. Uh, Dr. Nicole Ashpole, thank you so much for joining us on the Mayo Lab podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. All right. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mayo Lab podcast. The Mayo Lab podcast is produced by Dr. Natasha Jeter, Dr. Megan Rosenthal, David McGee, Alexis Lee, and Slade Lewis. This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones, and our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. For more information on the Mayo Lab, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at the Mayo Lab. 
If you enjoyed listening to the Mayo Lab podcast with David McGee, we need your help. Tell others about it. And we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of David McGee and guests of the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters relating to his or her health or the health of a child.